I'm so excited to have my good friend, legend, uh, legendary producer and director, Barry Averidge. Welcome. Uh, you look like you're somewhere tropical, but uh, man, it's so good to see you. It is great to see you. There, there's, uh, there's no better brother that I have in the industry than you. <laughs> well, the, the thing I say about you uh, often is you either love Barry or you don't love Barry, but you're always going to get the truth from Barry, at least from a subjective standpoint. But uh, I always loved your chutzpah, and, and we're going to talk about where that comes from because it's not uh, typically Canadian. I'll use typically in big quotes. But um, I want the list of the people that you said that, that, that the people that love me, I'm thrilled about. <laughs> the people that don't love me, uh, you, you can mention names, uh, Sergio. That, I'm fine with that. that. You can't be in this industry <laughs> for 30 years. Uh, and and be in you know make films and and make controversial decisions on various things and not have that uh, that uh, that that crowd. I think it was um, uh, Jimmy Durante who said surrounded by assassins. Uh, so there there's always been a couple of those, but that's okay. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. But you 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 know you travel through this industry boldly. Um, you have this unique combination of some artistry, obviously. Um, the business, distribution, but most importantly, marketing. And the marketing thing is, it just blows me away how little Canadian artists think about that. And uh, so it, it, I think having all those parts of you have, have contributed to your success. Would you agree? Well, 100%. I'm lucky in that I've had a, a schizophrenic parallel career in both advertising, specifically entertainment, uh, and and being uh, and and making uh, films and television specials and whatnot on that end of it, uh, I think as a filmmaker or a any kind of creative content creator, if if you don't have marketing as part of the equation, then you know as you know you send it out into the ether and good luck to you. Uh, you know I've always again having the fortune of and benefit of marketing thousands of films through my relationship with Alliance and E1. Uh, I, I, I've learned what it is to produce a great poster, a key art, a trailer, uh, public relations. There isn't a film that I put out that doesn't have a PR team attached to it. And anytime we launch a film at a festival or launch it on a network, people always say, why does he have more press than we do? Uh, because you've relied on others to do it and good luck to you. You, you know, you, you can't, you know, I, and go and segueing back, you know, my father's great advice to me was, you know, never blend in. And uh, as a filmmaker, and specifically in Canada, where nobody likes you to be too successful, too out there, too self-promoting, you know, just be happy. That's right. You know, you're a learning, a living. You made your film. We took your little movie. We put it out. We accepted it here. Just, just shut up. Don't make waves. And that's not my way. So, hence the beginning of your. Uh, introduction to me. Some people love him. Some people hate him. I mean, the people that hate him uh, or hate me is is because you know you dare to have an opinion or you dare to say no. I I want my film positioned this way. I want it programmed that way. Uh, and people don't like that pushback in this country. Uh, it's very un-Canadian. Well, you know, if I listened to that advice, uh, I'd be you know making films about the gestation period of the Canadian beaver or elk. Or something, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just not the films I want to make. the The first few times I met you, you know, I I really loved your style that that shoot from the hip, 
kind of straight to, you know, the, the kind of thing that one would imagine when you meet an artist or, or a producer out of New York or even L.A., did it ever cross your mind to to make that move like many have? And uh, if not, why not? What kept you here in Canada? You know, I, I, I love the politics of this country. I love the diversity of this country. I love the lifestyle of this country. And I, I did think, and there were opportunities early on when, you know, I had a, a couple of um, successes early on with some documentaries. And then, uh, you know, somebody said to me from L.A., it, it's such a tough business that, you know, you've got a hit documentary, which was The Last Mogul in 2005, and then 2006, you're a waiter at Spago. Uh, so I realized that it really doesn't matter. And this is pre-COVID in terms of where you work from. I spent a lot of time in Los Angeles, as do you, on that end of it. I keep the network working mm-hmm. like crazy and connecting and connecting. I always tell young filmmakers, there isn't anybody that won't take a meeting with you. You have to be persistent. You have to have your way in. So, uh, you know, it, it doesn't mean that some point I might not end up there, but in Los Angeles, but, uh, you know, I, I spend so much time there now and, and it hasn't really hindered my projects where it does hinder Sergio. And, you know, this was, I saw this in the making of, uh, my Oscar Peterson film recently that, you know, if, as an artist, if you, if you end up deciding to stay in Canada for your entire career, you do have a harder time being known and accepted in the industry outside of Canada. So Oscar Peterson, you know, people go, well, when you think about jazz, why don't you think of Oscar Peterson? When you think of great film directors, and why don't you think of Norman Jewison? Legendary career. Because these people, these artists decided to stay in Canada, although they worked in the US, but, you know, they weren't out there all the time uh, and working it. And so, you know, I've, I've discussed this with Martin Short and Jim Carrey and and many Canadian superstars, and they've always mm-hmm. felt that they've never really been accepted in Canada. Uh, and I don't feel that I'm accepted in Canada, you know, some 60 projects later. So, you know, that, and, and that's fine. You know, I, you know, I, I, it's not like I'm not getting any work, uh, and, and there's no projects on the table. Uh, <laughs> so that's fine. Uh, you're always what can working. You, do? Uh, you know, it's incredible. Always working. Always working, uh, and and I love. Well, it's, it. so your you know, career has been so prolific. Thank you. No, your 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 work has been prolific. I mean, I remember the last mogul, how controversial that was, and I'm like, who is this guy? You know, I you know, who's this Canadian that had the guts to do that to go up against somebody who was both, you know, I'll just say it, charming, but also terrifying. Uh, whenever I'd run into him at any festivals, whether it was Cannes or TIFF, you know he sort of had this charisma that you wanted to be around him, but you could also tell that he had a, you know, the other side. Um, it was scary. Where does that, that courage come from? Like it, does it come from growing up in Montreal? Like what, what is it? Was it your parents or did you have mentors that helped guide that, that process for you? Well, you know, I'm a storyteller. My father was a storyteller. My father was not in the film industry, um, but he understood selling he understood storytelling uh and and he also what he did understand about the film industry which i loved even early on when he would take me to see movies and it's not like we were going to see the seventh uh, samurai or uh or uh <laughs> sergey or uh, eisenstein's the battleship potemkin we weren't seeing that kind of mm-hmm. film he wasn't a film academic but here's what he understood sergio is that he said to me barry watch the audience not the film 
And I said, Dad, what do you mean by that? He goes, look how it's interesting that, you know, when they look at their watch, there were no phones then, but when you look at your watch, they look at their watch or they, they're wrestling in their seat, they're, they've lost interest. And he was in ladies' wear um, and uh, making it and selling it. And he knew that when he was showing a line for the season, when somebody was not that interested or looking away or he's lost their attention, how he needed to engage them. And he said, look, it's the same thing in the film. What's going on in the audience? And I never forgot that. So anytime you know, I, I screen a rough cut of a film uh, uh, with uh, whether it's friends and family or having an audience in to look at it. I, I do sit with a reverse chair and watch them. Ugh, I'm losing them. It's lagging in the second act. Uh, you know, and that part of that also, Sergio, comes from my advertising background. When you're making commercials in a 30 or 60 second medium, which is way more difficult than a feature film, you know, you better keep them, uh, uh, you know, at the gate or at the gate right at the beginning of things. Their interest uh, it had to be at a high level right through, and it has to be the same thing for a film. You can't be precious about things. And I think that's part of the reason why, you know, I've never really been accepted in the Canadian film industry, because I'm not making films about a school bus uh, sinking into the ice and, uh, and you know, and heavy duty, you know, ecological. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Beautiful film. Uh, uh, but, but you know, I, I'm commercial and, and, and outspoken and people yeah. like that. I mean, we're, you and I, you know, first worked together on a gala that I was producing and with 8,000 people around the table and I produce everything, whether it's a gala or a dinner party or a film or a television special with that sense of Hollywood. And with that takes, you know, an aggressive, an aggressive creative position, uh, you know, producing the Canadian Screen Awards for three years. Some people like the shows. Uh, someone didn't. I won't mention his name, but because there's a, you know, there's a commercial sense <laughs> of what, of, of what I do. Uh, and so, you know, but I, I want that when that tree falls in the forest, I want people to see it. Uh, and, you know, that expression of, you know, don't don't love uh, yourself in the art, love the art in yourself. It has to be a mix of both. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you've done over 60 films, uh, all, you know, a lot of them extremely successful. Some have ran Oscar nomination races. I was, I you know, I had the privilege of being there when you screened Prosecuting Evil in L.A. We were in the Hollywood Hills, and I show up at this incredible, uh, <laughs> you know, house that you know, mansion overlooking a hill, and then you walk in, and there's this like huge full full size theater, and I guess there was about 150 of the most powerful people in Hollywood from, you know, the the, the Academy, the Golden Globes, whatever, whatever, and um. And I just loved being a fly on the wall and just seeing you operate and work the room and kind of, uh, you know, being very intentional about why you're there, what you're there to do. And the experience of seeing that film, I didn't expect it because I, I knew you kind of like I knew all the parts of you and I thought, OK, this is this is a Barry show, you know, and, and great. So I sat down, didn't know what to expect, see Prosecuting Evil. And I just I think I was crying from like five minutes in right to the end and by the end there wasn't a dry eye in the room and um would you say that was your most personal film because i know sometimes you know you're doing like a hundred different things and you're relying heavily yep. on your team your editor your whatever whatever was prosecuting evil the closest to you personally as a, as a person as a filmmaker as an artist it's a great question uh no one's asked that before so good for you i think to go back to that party i want to make it clear your listeners, that was not my house. One does not get that house <laughs> making documentaries. Uh, that was part of a, um, you know, uh, a, a very yeah. uh, a 
unsuccessful but well-designed uh, um, Oscar nomination strategy and campaign, which which saw this wonderful you know, multiple screenings and having a screening uh, which had you know yes, I mean everybody from Ron Meyer at the time chair of Universal Studios to you know major agents and, and talent in that in that incredible screening on that end of it. Uh, you know what I learned, and I know you've been down that road that you know to get Oscar nominations. You have to have a studio behind you. So me as as this, you know, yeah. although this was a Netflix film, Netflix didn't make it. And so, you know, this was sort of Barry Average independent. How dare he launch an Oscar campaign on that end of it? We tried and we didn't succeed. But, you know, to your original question, was it the most personal film? I'm involved in everything that I make. Uh, we could talk about my editorial process in a minute, but there's no question that film. Sure was touching uh and really shook me it was it surprised me that um ben forens who was sort of the last living nuremberg prosecutor mm-hmm. a film had not been made about him i saw him on 60 minutes and said let's make a film and it was one of the most simplistic wasn't films it your I've ever daughter made. That, that suggested it yes she saw it on 60 minutes and said dad gotta have a look at this guy and i i called ben and uh Delray, Florida, uh, the day after, on Monday after seeing it at 60 Minutes, and said, I want to make a movie about your life. And he said, so let's do it. Uh, you know, and, and, uh, and off wow. we went, you know, and, wow. you know, eight months later, we had a film, uh, which was at TIFF and elsewhere. But, uh, uh, yeah, it was a very powerful, powerful film. And I, I felt very close to Ben because, you know, when I talk about, not that I've had anywhere near a career that he's had in terms of substance, but he too, you know, was really sort of unrecognized, uh, considering he liberated Auschwitz. Uh, you know, he was uh, the last Nuremberg prosecutor, uh, convicted 12 Nazis, co-created the International Criminal Court. And because of his politics, he would never get the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Uh, he would never get uh, uh, the Nobel Peace Prize, which he should get Absolutely. on that end of it. And here he is, uh, uh, he just turned 100, 102. Um few wow, days ago God bless. and and he is spectacular wow. so uh you know in a body of work that is certainly one of the most important films for me yeah he he's uh wow to hear him speak those are those moments in life where you look back and go wow you know those are the the moments you never forget well you also you, you also you know you you also look at your own life and say gee you know if i accomplished anything when you see what you know this man you know, came out of, uh, out of, you know, fighting World War II, uh, liberating a camp, and that would have been enough. But to then go on, you know, and prosecute 12 Nazis and then work on reparations and ensure that the cemeteries, uh, in, in these Eastern countries were still, uh, um, there and, and preserved. You know, you see what's going on in Ukraine today where the Russians are bombing, uh, you know, uh, cemeteries of Holocaust, uh, victims. <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, I, I know Ben is looking at this and going, you know, here we go again. Nothing's really changed. And that's what really the message of that film is, is that we're destined to see history repeat itself. And here we go. Yeah. And the power of propaganda and gaslighting. And, you know, we've seen it during this pandemic, how quickly everyone can just line up to one narrative and, and not even. And if anyone asks questions, they get canceled. So it's Correct. it's very dangerous. It's very dangerous, especially for artists that want to approach things with an open heart, you know, without taking the politics out of it. I mean, we're just talking about basic humanity. Um, what was your, I guess, the impetus for your memoir? Uh, 
if anyone's interested to learn more about Barry, Moguls, Monsters, and Mad Men, it's a great book. Um, did you have people guiding that, or was it written from the heart? It was written. It was written entirely on a BlackBerry. Um, you know, uh, five hundred pages on various airplane rides. I wanted to wow. get it done because you know your your memory starts to fail, and you want the stories preserved. I wanted to inspire other Canadian people, whether they're in business uh, or film or whatever, that they can meet the people they want to meet. Uh, they they can succeed in this country. Uh, through this six degrees of separation that I've had. I also wanted my daughter to have, uh, um, you know, an archive of my legacy beyond the film. So the storytelling was there. And I just wanted to get it down on paper so I didn't have to keep, you know, remembering anything, whether it sold a copy when I started it or not. You know, really, I had uh, no mission to sort of make it uh, a bestseller or, or you know, or, or add to any branding. It was just really let, you know, uh, who writes biographies in Canada uh, and when you're coming out of the business world? Very few because nobody, you know, nobody thinks they're worthy uh, of it. I wanted to get it done. And, you know, and name a few names. Yeah, it's a great book. Thank you. Um, as, as a Canadian, uh, have you ever in your personal life had to deal with, you know, the imposter syndrome or negotiating these different parts of yourself? Like you're running you know, an uh, incredibly successful ad agency, and then you're standing on the podium at TIFF representing a movie as a filmmaker. How do you integrate those parts of yourself? And um, how did you get through those moments where you're sort of like, I don't deserve to be here? I don't think about that. Uh, you know, I, I, I've made good films. I've made films that aren't great for various reasons. Uh, but I feel that anytime a Canadian gets something filmed and edited, Congratulations to you. <laughs> Amen. This is not an easy industry in, in, in this country. Uh, you know, there are very few networks that are available to support. Uh, there's, you know, funding opportunities are complicated. And it tends to be a lot of the usual suspects and usual topics that are getting funded. So, uh, you know, I never felt like an imposter. I know there's always people. It's my own insecurity. But I know there's people in the audience going, you know, why him? And, he, you know, he's got this, you know, career in advertising. And so he doesn't really need to do this. Is he really a filmmaker? You know, is he really starved for his art? Uh, these are all questions that are all stupid. You know, it's a stupid waste of time. Focus on your own career and your own achievements. Uh, and, you know, focusing on, you know, whether I'm an imposter, whether I deserve to be on that podium or not. But I'll have to tell you, Sergio, I mean, that, you know, every time I've I've been on that podium, you know, it's a fight to get to that podium. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's God, not yeah. the usual, uh, uh, conclusion. And, uh, so be it. I mean, you know, years ago, somebody in the Globe and Mail did a profile on me, uh, and, and wrote that, you know, he has extraordinary, uh, self-promotion skills, self-promotion skills. And my late friend and mentor, Dusty Cole, who started the Toronto Film Festival, mm -hmm. read the piece in the Globe, called me and he said, what the hell is this? You make sure that that journalist retracts that. That's ridiculous. And he was so angry. And I said, Dusty, I, I, you know, I'm not angry about it. I said, you know, self-promote or die in this country. <laughs> Period. Uh, and, and that's what it's about. I mean, you know, Period. The, 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 the journalists aren't going to, you know, 
carve a path out to you. Yes, I mean, it's gotten easier for me, but, you know, it's taken 30 years of uh, public relations, uh, you know, uh, some controversial subject matters, uh, uh, prolific filmmaking to say, you know, I've arrived. Am I ever going to get the Life Achievement Award in Canada? No, and I don't want it. You know, uh, <laughs> at the end of the day, I want to keep making films. If I'm going to, you know, rely on these things, uh, then, you know, that's, it's, who cares on that end of it. I just want to keep making films. I know how the audience feels about my films. I don't make films for Canadian film critics uh, or critics at all. The reality is I'm, I'm more widely known as a documentary filmmaker in the U.S. than I am in Canada. Uh, and that's fine. But, you know, I wouldn't trade where I am for anything. Yeah. I, uh, one time, it was very early in my career. It was my first feature film. Michael Moore was there. And I had an opportunity to talk to him, and, and you know, at length. And I said, do you believe that we as artists or filmmakers have the ability to affect change or to change society in any, any way? And he couldn't answer the question um, in, a, in a very clear and direct way. You know, it's like, there's got to be, I mean, why do we do what we do? I guess is my question. Fundamentally, I'm sure you've thought about this. It's not the easiest thing in the world. There's ways your ways to make money. Uh, so why, why do you do film after film after film? Are you running away or are you running to something? I'm not running away from anything. I, I, I love, I love being creative. I mean, whether, whether it was in the ad agency and creating a, you know, a, a an ad campaign for the Pan Am games or for, you know, a, a new product Starbucks many years ago or whatever it is. I like the challenge. I like putting the pieces together. I like the fact that in the documentary world, unlike the scripted world, I control the process. Uh, I'm not reporting to anybody. And so I will, I will, uh, live and die on the edge of the sword if I've made the wrong creative uh, decisions. And I like solving the, the creative challenges. When, when, we, when I did the film Made You Look, my great editor, Tiffany Bodin, who's just finished this new film, Talented Mr. Rosenberg, it's going to be at Hot Dogs with me. Congrats. You know, we, Congratulations. We having issues. Thank you. She was figuring out the story. And, you know, in editing a film, and you know this, is like a Rubik's Cube. You keep turning and turning and turning to get those solid colors and, and finessing and finding it out and, and, and getting the boring moments out and making sure that the storytelling is so entertaining. And I liked, you know, it was so at one point, and generally in, in the editing process, I'll, you know, I'll shoot the entire film. I will map out the arc of the story with the editor on, on cards. Act one, act two, three, so you, you 12 acts. So you, you put a wall up? You put a wall up I do. with uh, cue cards? I do. It's critical for me to see the wall and figure out the sub themes and all that kind of stuff. And, and, you know, we were, we couldn't figure out and made you look, you know, when to let the audience in on the fraud and, and whatnot. And so we literally, you know, I got down on the floor, uh, on my hands and knees with the cards and we just reshuffled the deck and found the answer. And, you know, and, and I like that. I mean, we're going through that now on the talented Mr. Rosenberg, a film about a, you know, a long, career-long con artist of, you know, where do you find the balance of how charming he is with how despicable he is? Uh, and it's, it's so I, I like that. I like that challenge. Uh, and there's, uh, there, and, and thankfully in the documentary world, there's, there's, there's no satiating me in terms of the ideas that are out there. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, the, the Ruby's cube thing is a great analogy because 
it just seems to click. And then everyone in the room goes, yeah, you know, like there's that moment where you just know. Um, do you typically work with the same team? I think you, you told me once that you, you do, you rely heavily on your, on your team, uh, or does it depend on the project? I do. Um, I, you know, I generally have the same, um, cinematographer on all of my docs. Uh, um, Ken Ng is his name. Um, and, uh, he sort of leads the way with me in terms of the look and lighting and approach. And then the same thing with, uh, although I, I, there's a couple of different editors that I use. I mean, there's editors that are fabulously stylish. Mm-hmm. There are editors that are very strong on storytelling. Uh, you know, when I do my, uh, I've done, I think, 17 Stratford stage to screen adaptations. We just did Three Tall Women, Martha Henry's last performance, which is so fabulous. And I use an editor named George Ralston. He's British and he's, He's so fabulous in understanding Shakespeare's language. This wasn't this is Edward Albee, but in all the Shakespeare that we've done, he's spectacular on that end of it. And he will tell you, I'm not a Barry. I'm not. Don't look for me for sizzle and style. You know, it's about storytelling. And then others, you know, Tiffany Bowden is, you know, is so methodical in putting the pieces together. Nick Kleiman, who did um, Oscar Peterson, edits edits like a freight train, which is the way Oscar played, and so. You know, it's a hundred miles an hour. Uh, Eugene Weiss, who did David Foster, you know, is, is so heavily, you know, MTV in terms of his approach that in terms of all the music that was in there, he was fantastic. So you, you know, you tend to mix about, I'm not going to, you know, I, I, I don't have the luxury of Martin Scorsese and working with Thelma on, on you know, on every film because she understands and yet she's so, uh, uh, such a spectacular editor and, in her approach and style, but I, I, you know, I tend to sort of move it around a little bit, but there's still some core team. I'm working very closely with Mark Selby. Now a young producer who's really heir to the throne, uh, in, you know, in, in, in my world on that, who's, you know, who's uh, co-producing a lot of my work with me and, uh, and is really fabulous. He understands the business. He's, you know, I met him working on the Canadian screen awards. We've then gone on to do the, Scotiabank Giller Prize show three times, and he's now working on his third or fourth documentary or fifth documentary. I mean, he, he's great. That's amazing. That is amazing. And when you're selecting a project, is there, you must do this intuitively, or there must be a process in your head where you say, uh, you know, this feels right. What was the moment where you decided to do the Weinstein movie? Like what, and, and were you afraid? Were there moments where you're like, shit, I really bit off more than I could chew? Well, you have to understand on Weinstein, on Harvey Weinstein, there was two. Uh, and, and the background of that was, you know, I was the ad agency for, uh, Alliance in Canada. Uh, and they had the distribution rights to all of, um, uh, Miramax films and then Weinstein Company. So I had a front row seat wow. to it. I would see him at the film festivals. I would see him in Cannes. Uh, and so I decided to make a film called Unauthorized about him. And this war started where, you know, no, no, no. And he wasn't, he wasn't really at a great power position in his career. He had, you know, Miramax was gone. It was the Weinstein company. He was going on his way to Saudi Arabia to raise money to keep the machine going. And so, you know, he was, this was really on the threshold of him, you know, in his resurgence with the King's speech. So he wasn't really in a power position, but you didn't screw with Harvey. Uh, and, you know, and, and he really, went out of his way. He liked me and feared me at the same time, which was very weird. So he kept me very close, uh, and, and yet kept threatening all kinds of things. If I, if I made 
and completed the film. And there were times I met him in, in L.A. at the Montage Hotel the day before the Oscars where he won the King's Speech. And mm-hmm. he was trying to convince me to not to do the film. And I said, I'm, I'm finished it. Well, you know, let's agree that we don't release it. This, that, I can get you a distribution deal and I will finance a film. You want to make a film about Marty Scorsese? And it's like, no. Uh, do you want to make a film about Arthur Krim, the founder of Orion <laughs> Films? Uh, no. Uh, do you want to make a film about David Boies, the activist lawyer? No. I, you know, I don't want to do that. And then he invited me to his Oscar party at the, uh, uh, at the, uh, Chateau Marmont the next day. And it was like, ugh, I went. It was so uncomfortable and weird. Quentin Tarantino was there. His mother was there. And they, and I was sort of like the villain. And, uh, the film hadn't even come out, but he won in that he, uh, that film, uh, unauthorized because I, I was at TIFF, Sergio, and it was one of these great moments in my life where IFC films, I write about this in the book, IFC films approached me and said, we, can we see your film? I said, yes. I screened it in a studio downtown in Toronto and, uh, they came back with an offer, the largest offer I'd ever had for a documentary. It wasn't Michael Moore's stuff. But it was, it was, you know, a big number on that end of it. And I literally signed the agreement at Sassafras, this uh, restaurant in Yorkville, yeah. quickly. And I should have realized that this is just too good to be true. But I'd sold the film. It had already been sold in Canada, but I'd sold the film to IFC worldwide. And then the shoe dropped. I got called to New York and, and, uh, Jonathan Searing, who ran IFC at the time, was basically a suit, uh, had a yellow legal pad in front of him with a thousand changes he wanted to make to the film. And I said, these sound like they're changes from Harvey. You bought the film. Yeah, but Barry, this is what we need for the international release. And it was like, no. And I remember calling my lawyer and saying, you know, get me out of this. We'll give him the money back. And he said, are you crazy? Give them the money back. You know, compromise. And so I went back to New York and, and, and I pretty much got what I wanted, but what they did with the film was that they basically never released it. They had a new platform pre-Netflix called Sundance Now, where you needed a St. Bernard in the Swiss Alps to find the film, <laughs> programmed at bizarre hours of the night. They they took my trailer, which was very hard-hitting on Harvey, and, and re-edited it, so it made it look like he was winning, uh, you know, the Nobel Peace Prize for, or as a humanitarian. It was ridiculous. And, uh, and what I did really was embarrass IFC and Jonathan Siri because I wrote articles for Hollywood Reporter and Variety on how I got fucked over here on that. And, uh, I certainly didn't make any friends with that. And, uh, but Harvey, you know, knew that I knew the story. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, he knew that there were people at the time when I was making the film. The question that, that I'm always asked is, did you know that Harvey was a sexual predator when you made unauthorized? And, um, I did, but he was still powerful. Nobody would go on camera and say that. I, I would have famous directors, Sergio, and famous journalists say, can you turn the camera off? Here's a story I want to tell you. Wow. Uh, and they would tell me these insane Crazy. stories about what they knew, but nobody would go on record and nobody would, you know, uh, uh, you know, Ashley Judd and, you know, Charlize Theron and Gwyneth Paltrow and, uh, Gretchen Mole and nobody, these Me Too heroes, would not do anything at that point because he was still Harvey Weinstein. Fast forward, when the New York Times story breaks, I, I wake up and I can't live with myself that the only film on Harvey Weinstein that's out there is somewhat laudatory uh, of his career as a scrappy independent film distributor. 
Um, and I decide to make the reckoning, uh, where, uh, a lot of fabulous people go on the record. However, you know, even then, you know, the people that came out after he was convicted, uh, or on his way to being convicted later on, I was too early with the film. Uh, I had sold it in Canada. It was the, the first Me Too documentary. Very proud of it. Michelle Hosier, editor, spectacular. Really a great job. Some very powerful victim, uh, and, uh, storytelling and, and ascent of the Me Too movement. But I was too early. So what was happening in the United States as, as the distributor vertical was shopping it around is that they were saying, well, everybody had to see it. And it was in demand. And they were, you're going to get a huge offer. You're going to, wow. And then the studios would look at it and go, holy shit, this is basically a condemnation of Hollywood. Uh, you know, I interviewed agents yeah. that sent actresses into Harvey's hotel room. Uh, and they said, eh, you know, and then I had a, a big offer from a studio, uh, from a streamer. And then they had a Me Too firing and said, well, we can't take this show. So ultimately, Hulu bought it. And I salute them for their bravery in taking the film. But I was the first film and what I uh, out. And what I realized, Sergio, was that people don't really want to watch these films. They, they don't want to watch these stories. You know, you can watch a, a film about the Tinder swindler inventing Anna, you know, yeah. these things because there's, co there's comedy and tragedy. In these sort of grosser films like Harvey, they don't want to watch him. I mean, you know, I was trying to sell a film about Jeffrey Epstein long before he was convicted the second time. Uh, and it was just, you know, here he was wow. living in Palm Beach, Florida. And I saw him wandering out, I, I, out on the town in Palm Beach. I saw that I had my wife park me in front of his house in Palm Beach and I'd see the girls going in and out. And I said, this is a film. And I, I, I wrote a deck up and I started to shop it. And this is what the response was from major streamers. Who's Jeffrey Epstein? Who cares? They didn't know. Wow. Him. They'd never heard of him. And then wow. another famous streamer said to me, look, you need to partner with an Academy Award winning documentary producer. Uh, and then this will get done. So I said, OK. And I, they set up some meetings and I go to these Academy Award winning producers and they go, no, no, no. I, I just, you know, got nominated for this film. I just won an Oscar for this documentary. Oh, no, no, no. I, I'm not doing this story. It's <laughs> disgusting. So I said, okay. And then, of course, you know, he, Jeffrey Epstein gets convicted, kills himself, and then Netflix does that multi-part series on him, which to me, there was no smoking gun, and uh, I didn't think it was that great. And, and there was just there was just nothing there. Yeah. And, and sometimes willful blindness Willful blindness is is uh, convenient. We've, we're seeing it more and more that people, you know, it's like that <laughs> famous Nichols in line. They can't handle the truth. It's like, yeah, I, I couldn't even get through it. Like I watched a part of it. It's just too disturbing. It's like, you know, the paradox is that crime films and crime documentaries are hotter than ever. People want them. But to a point, I mean, you know, they don't necessarily want to watch Finding Neverland. If you ask people about Finding Neverland, the Michael Jackson doc. I watched one episode. You know, it, it's too it's too disturbing. So you have to find that balance, right? Yeah. Well, people are. Uh, we've seen you know with the with the rise of like TikTok and people just want escapist you know kind of trite crap often you know because the you know the why do we entertain is why do we watch entertainment is to escape the you know 
how banal and, and, you know, mundane our own lives are sometimes. And, and that's why we would watch Three's Company in the 70s and 80s or happy days to kind of like escape your own life. Well, escape the news, escape the news in your own life for sure. <laughs> yeah. Does any of this um, affect you? You know, like were any, are there films that you can recall that where you were kind of like miserable or, you know, you'd bring it home and, and you just couldn't shake the um, the feeling of making that movie? You know, in both of the Weinstein films, for sure, interviewing victims, uh, you know, I worked with Melissa Hood, Canadian producer on that, and I, I really felt I needed as a male entering this territory, I really needed her genius and her insight uh, in terms of what these women were saying. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, I'd leave those interviews shaken, interviewing Dylan Farrell, whether it you choose to believe her story about Woody or not. I mean, you know, it's still incredibly sobering and, and horrible. So, for, I mean, leaving Ben Ferenz, you know, when he describes uh, walking into Auschwitz and seeing what he does or convincing, you know, the the uh, the Germans that they must preserve the cemeteries of the Jews and he takes the bones from the ovens in Auschwitz and throws them on the table. I mean, you, you know, you're, it's, it's, you're shaken by that. Uh, there's no question, which is why even in my filmmaking, I, I like, you know, I do something very, very tough and powerful. And then I do like something fun and frivolous, like a Howie Mandel doc or, you know, producing a, a TV special or something, which has its own insanity, uh, high wire act, but uh, it's fun and it's what we do. You know, I, I wouldn't trade a minute of it. And there's, you know, there's horribly, you and I have talked about this, there's horribly discouraging days and, you know, and you'll get stupid reviews and stuff. I mean, you know, I, I, you know, I'd like to be that person that says, I don't read reviews, but, you know, even in this day and age where I really believe that and I respect film criticism for those that are good at it, uh, for in these days when film criticism isn't really how people decide what to see anymore. You know, a, a, a review uh, will be, a bad review is still hard because, you know, you just feel fine. You've invested a ton of money, as you know. You you know, storytelling is great. You, festival audiences are loving it. People watching it in theaters and on television are loving it. So, you know, what did I miss? Because some idiot writes something like, I don't know that I learned anything new. Well, I didn't make the film for you, you fucking idiot. <laughs> So, you know, and, and, you know, when you go make a documentary, it, it, it's like I, I have systematically gotten bad reviews on, you know, on RogerEbert.com. Well, what is that? You know, uh, he's not here anymore. So what is, why, you know, why, why, <laughs> anyway, whatever. <laughs> whatever is right. Yeah, I, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, it's social media, too, has perpetuated some of that, the nastiness it's just so easy to sit behind a computer and just spew garbage. I think, you know, anytime there's, uh, you know, a review of question, I accept a, uh, you know, a film screening uh, invitation. And you go and you sit with the real people that care about your movies. And, you know, and there used to be this joke. I mean, Dusty Cole, again, the guy that started the Toronto Film Festival would say, look, you know, as a filmmaker, you could spend your entire life going to film festivals and it feels really great. But did you sell the film? And I think it's always a combination of, of both in, in that, yes, film festival audiences are generally, unless you're in Cannes, are generally inclined to like what you're doing because they chose to go and see it. And it feels good. 
to do that Q&A. It feels good to be with a live audience specifically after COVID. But, you know, that, that definitely uh, uh, realigns yourself as an artist when it's the people that matter give you feedback, whether they don't like it or not. I mean, I, I remember, cute story, if you have time, I remember, you know, I made a film about David Steinberg, um, the you know famous Canadian director and comedian uh, called Quality Balls, and we were screening it at a film festival in Minneapolis. Uh, and I was sitting in the lobby because I find it very hard to watch my own films. And this woman came out to get some popcorn. And I said, and she then she was sat next to me. And I said, you're not going to go in and watch the rest of the film. And she goes, who cares about David Steinberg? He seems like such an arrogant prick. And, and uh, you know, I really, really didn't like the film. And I went, oh, okay. And an older person. And I said, oh, okay, that's interesting. And, and, uh, and she said, oh, where are you from? And I said, Toronto. And her heart sunk. And she goes, Oh, you're the filmmaker. <laughs> and, but I love that. You know, I, I love that. Uh, you know, I love those moments because it's the audience. It's not film critics. It's the audience giving you real feedback and saying this was shit or this was great. And that's fine. You know, I prefer it from somebody who's bought a fucking ticket versus somebody that was sent a link is watching it on their on their iPhone while doing something else and not really assuming they've watched the whole film. And then banging out a review. Anyway, it's enough condemnation about film critics. I, I think for the most part, there there are great ones. There are also ones that are that just don't understand the art form of documentary. Yeah. I was gonna ask you, you you've had such a fascinating privilege we'll call it privileged life. I know it, there was a lot of hard work, sweat and tears that went into you know, to achieving that. But um being around the most, I guess, famous, most successful uh, artists in the world, uh, names, I mean, the, you know, huge, huge names in entertainment. Do you have a different or unique perspective now on fame and celebrity success and fulfillment? And ha- has that helped shape your career in, in terms of your personal goals as an artist? Such a great question with so much depth. Uh, you know, I've had no trouble from the beginning meeting and accessing celebrity for various projects, whether it be tribute galas or that I'm producing or, or people that I want in my films. I think that, you know, people are intimidated by celebrities. It's another echelon. It's another life. It's, you know, how do you relate? There are ways to sort of work through this. I, I will say that, you know, certain celebrities have given me great life lessons for the good and the bad of how to act and how to, you know, survive the industry. Quincy Jones, who I consider a personal friend, when I was going through a, a horrible time in my life, a partner that had done terrible, terrible things to me. And I, I went to sit at the feet of Q, uh, where there's no better, and, you know, and wept. And, you know, and, and the one thing about Quincy is that he's a great listener, uh, and he wants your story. And he literally took my hands and he said, Barry, don't you understand that a beautiful picture starts with the negative. Wow. Okay. Wow. You know, uh, gr- great advice. Uh, you know, and, and he also, you know, has this alchemy of life in that, you know, you must live, love, laugh, and give back. And we spend a lot of time dissecting those words. Uh, you know, and then, you know, as per my book, and then you meet bastards uh, out there who are, you know, extraordinarily rude and aggressive and arrogant and you know whether it's a harvey weinstein or 
and Alec Baldwin. You know, you do meet those bastards who are just, you know, awful. And then you meet people like James Earl Jones and others that I've intersected with that have just been Eric McCormick. And, you know, I've been very, very lucky uh, to understand early on that in dealing with these people that it's, you know, it's not about praising them, but it's about, you know, offering them insight into creative process, learning from them, pulling, you know, dealing with people like Robert Lantos and Garth Trubinsky early on. It's about pulling uh, the thorn out of the lion's paw. How do you diffuse ego uh, and make it work is a great, uh, a great skill. Yeah. And, you know, I've had the pleasure of uh, kind of being exposed to the tender side of Barry Average. And then there's the the public image, you know, so we often in my circles and friends and family, we're always talking about the notion of success. What does success mean? You know, and, and certainly Instagram gives us one version of what success is, which is celebrity fame, you know, Lamborghinis, et cetera, et cetera, all the glitz and, and glamour. From your perspective, how do you interpret success and what have you learned? What are some of the insights from from these great um, celebrities? that you've had the privilege of working with? Well, I mean, you know, a privileged life. I don't know if it's been a privilege. It's a privileged life in that I'm healthy, that I've made a living, that I'm able to provide for my family. I didn't come from that, but I've been sort of determined to, you know, uh, work and create and find a way to give back. And so I go back to that sort of Quincy Jones mantra of live, love, laugh, and give back. And so that's sort of the alchemy for me. I mean, you know, we all know that money doesn't buy happiness. It does buy access to a certain degree for certain people. Uh, and, you know, it helps. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, uh, health is health. Uh, and, and you have to create your own success. I don't believe in luck. Uh, so you have to sort of keep driving. You know, I've also learned, I mean, one of the things I've sort of talked about in, in terms of my rules, and I'm trying to sort of impart on my daughter is that, you know, return every phone call and email uh, and respond to people. Uh, I, I can't stand, it's not perfect and I'm not perfect at it, but I, I can't stand people that just don't respond. I know CEOs, as so do you, and major entertainment moguls who respond in same time, mercury fashion. And I love that and I respect that. And I've also, you know, part of my rule set is that I'm just as happy with a no as I am a yes. Maybe doesn't interest me and not getting back to me doesn't interest me. I'm, I'll, I can deal with a no. Mm-hmm. And then the other rule um, which is important to me is that uh, late is the enemy of great. Amen to that. Uh, yeah. Arrive, or, arrive early. And just, you know, I, I've known certain Canadian moguls without mentioning names and other people that sort of, it's a power trip for them to uh, have you sit in their reception for hours waiting for that meeting or delaying things or there there were some assistants that come out and say, oh, oh they're running late half an hour, an hour, two hours, can we reschedule? I mean, things happen. Uh, But, you know, when it's your MO, then I I find it's disrespectful and it's some kind of uh, psychopathic power trip, which I'm not interested in in playing. I, you know, I'm known to be punctual uh, and arrive early uh, as I have my, you know, my career, even, you know, when I, I, I would spend hours getting somewhere in advance just because I was afraid of walking in late. I didn't like the message. I think that's that's key. And then, you know, mentorship 
is key. I was given the opportunity early on by people, you know, great people that mentored me um, in life. Uh, very fortunate to have those mentors. And, uh, and so I do spend a lot of time helping people with their treatments for films if I see a commercial avenue. And even sometimes when I don't on that, uh, giving people opportunities to work on projects that I'm working on uh, and believing in, you know, the next generation in mistakes I've made and, and successes that I've had to sort of pass that on. Is is there a person or, or a handful of people that um, were there for you in your darkest moments that you want to acknowledge? Well, darkest moments and early moments. I mean, you know, Mary Pat Gleason, who was head of marketing at Alliance, who was an industry veteran that had come from Fox and I mean, just spectacular, taught me about uh, the art of market, marketing film. No question, spectacular. Uh, Quincy Jones, as I've mentioned in, in Dark Moments. Eddie Greenspan, the famous Canadian lawyer. Uh, just spectacular uh, mentor. Lucky to have him. Dusty Cole, uh, who started the Toronto Film Festival and the Floating Film Festival and was just a charismatic Canadian who certainly didn't blend in, who would, you know, shoot from the hip and tell you the good and the bad of things uh, and, and face the realities of things and was very brutally honest with me on, on many times and dealing with shit. Uh, Michael Cole, I learned early on, the you know, famous Rolling Stones concert promoter, YouTube Pink Floyd, in terms of his style of producing, very reclusive, but there was a, a certain style of understanding the entire equation of the business in one's head without compromising the art. Uh, very interesting to me. So, you know, I, I, again, my daughter likes to make fun of me that, you know, all of your friends are old people uh, <laughs> and it's by design. I mean, these are the people that have the wisdom. I mean, why wouldn't I be attracted to somebody that's traveled that road that might have some lessons? I mean, one of my first documentaries, Sergio, was a film called Unforgettable, where I interviewed people in their 90s and hundreds going into the millennium, what we needed to know going in. Famous people and not famous people, you know, a hundred year old man who said that the secret to living a long life was eating oatmeal to, you know, to, <laughs> you know, John Kenneth Galbraith, one of the great economists of our time, uh, to Ed Mervish, uh, Johnny Lombardi. I mean, interesting people in this film uh, that gave help, you know, give me the equation. Wow. It's so true. We can learn so much from our elders. And uh, when I, I work with Lou Gossett recently... Yes. You know, there's not many people on the planet that can say, yeah, I hung out at the actor's studio with Marilyn Monroe and, you know, I got handcuffed to a tree at the Beverly Hills Hotel in the 60s. And I mean, it's just, you know, I can listen to him for hours. And, and uh, you know, it's it's something that I think we're losing in society is that connection with our with our elders. And, you know, we can avoid a lot of potential pitfalls just by listening. We have a lot of uh, listeners that are emerging artists starting out looking for that piece of advice um, on, you know, mindset or attitude or whatever, the exact thing that we're talking about, imparting our wisdom and knowledge with the next generation. And you're certainly in a position to do that. What advice do you have for artists starting out today? Given that, uh, you know, the landscape has changed so much, the industry has changed, how we consume content has changed. You know, what, what advice do you have for artists starting out today? I mean, in no descending order, you know, you, it's important that your projects 
you're not making your project for yourself, that you're making your project for an audience that you intend to read it, see it, watch it, listen to it. You, you, you should not be so myopic, uh, and, and precious that you're, you know, I have that, that it becomes so personal that you forget that there's an audience that might want to see it. So I think, you know, having that, that sense of commercial is important. Is there an audience for what you want to produce? You could produce personal things too, as people have, but at the same time, you know, there needs to be an audience for it. I mean, even Sarah Pauly's film Away From Her was a personal story, but yet, you know, it was so well cast and well directed that, you know, there was an audience for it. So it's that it's that blend of of commercial and personal that's important. I think that, you know, the minute you have an idea and you're going to get the idea and start to, to create and put wings on it, you need to figure out how to promote it. You know, in, in terms of a film, the minute... You know, Sergio has an idea for a film. Get a poster done. Get a trailer done. Get it. You know, let the media, the trades know that this is coming. Don't be anonymous, even if it's a work in progress. And then also, you know, this is more film and television, and it could be books and and other things as well. Art is that shoot anything. Get a proof of concept done. A you know, a picture is worth a thousand words. People don't want to read long treatments, but if you can somehow, you know, I don't care whether it's done on your iPhone or you, you know, beg, borrow and steal somebody with a camera to edit together something that, you know, shows what you want to do. That helps. I mean, there's so much great work out there that, you know, to inspire people in terms of style and approach, you know, go and do the research, but get a proof of concept done so that people can understand what you're doing. I was mentoring somebody yesterday who's got a wonderful project. And I said, it's so important that you do the research and be able to compare it and say, you know, this is uh, inventing Anna meets, you know, uh, catch me if you can. I mean, so people understand the reference points of, of how this might be successful. That's incredible advice. And uh, as uh, as we wrap up, I can do this all day because I love uh, listening to you chat and uh, I love our conversations. Thanks, what do you have that's coming up that you can tell us about and uh, what's new and exciting? Um, a lot. I, you know, I'm working on, um, uh, well, talent, Mr. Rosenberg is, is uh, you know, really, you know, before the Tinder swindler, there was this guy, uh, uh, you know, it's an 80, incredible story, 82 years old, you know, but lifelong con artist. So that doc is at uh, Hot Docs. And I'm excited about that. CBC has that in Canada. And then we're, you know, we're, we're out to the rest of the world, God willing, on that one. Um, I just finished a film called Sacrilege Documentary narrated by Brian Cox that looks at the problem of terrorism in Europe. Why did Europe suddenly become an epicenter for terrorism, unpacking political mistakes and other religious agendas and, and, and how that sort of got in the way of Europe and freedom and, and, and peace. Uh, I've done that. Uh, I'm working on a documentary on Rosie Bella, Canada's RPG, recently retired Supreme Court judge. Uh, I'm working on a documentary series about Palm Beach and how this sort of crazy island is uh, is just unlike any other place in the world. Um, another doc called Born Hungry that looks at a phenomenal Indian story about a kid abandoned in India that, that becomes one of the most sought-after chefs in the world. Oh, lots of stuff. It's amazing. It's amazing. Thank you for the inspiration. Uh, it's great to see you. Uh, we Wishing you continued success and uh, looking forward to seeing you in person soon. Sergio, I appreciate the fact that you're doing this because th this podcast, which is rare in Canada to give people starting out an insight in terms of, you know, the, the 
what works and what doesn't work. You are one of the last, you know, great independent creative forces in this country. And, you know, and, and when I always say that people, it's hard for Canadians to name Canadian producers and directors on one hand in this country, there's a reason and, and you're changing that. So uh, thank you for doing this. Thank you. I, kind words and uh, well, you know, I'm, I'm super uh, appreciative of that. Well, I Sergio, I'm only trying to convert the people that you said at the beginning of the podcast don't like. <laughs> Nobody, I didn't say anyone hated you. I said they either love you or don't love you. But <laughs> it's it's easy to change that and let the work speak for itself. That's thank what I you, say. thank you. But thank you for continuing to inspire us, and thank you for your time. And I can't wait to see you in person. Thanks, thank you, buddy. Gary. You too. Take care, Thanks, man. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye bye.